Hi, and welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I am Eva, a civil engineering professor and blogger on the side. And I'm Rico, a PhD student in civil engineering. Join us on this podcast in which we discuss all topics related to PhD life, research mechanics, and lived experiences. There will be interviews and discussions with guest researchers and PhD students. We hope you stick around with us on the PhD Talk podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PhD Talk podcast. This is episode 25 and today we are going to talk about open science with Anke Versteeg and Nicole Will from the TU Delft, Delft University of Technology Library. So welcome Nicole and Anke, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, very nice to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, before we get started on the topic of open science, we wanted to know a little bit more about you. And I wanted to ask each of you, and I'll start with Anke, to tell us a bit about your background and career path and how you became a librarian or how you ended up working at the Theodelft Library. Okay. That's good. I'll start. Um, I started studying uh, Dutch literature and language at the University of Amsterdam, and I then did a special education for being a publisher. And I worked in the publishing industry for years and years, but that was in literature and in children's books, and then later in architectural books. And from the architectural books, I came to the Faculty of Architecture at Delft, and then being account manager for their library from the central library and then ended up in the central library and from the beginning on was interested in the publishing and helping people publishing. Uh, so, and then came all these idealistic open science thoughts, but we will come to that <laughs> later. <laughs> mm -hmm. How about you, Nicole? Yeah, uh, I studied, uh, I'm coming from France, and so I studied in France, uh, chemical engineering first, and I completed that with a program on, I would say, information science, we uh, call it documentalist. And uh, I started my career to work in industry, a uh, different type of industry, almost uh, in the IP and information centers of these companies. And later on, yeah, I switched to the university and uh, with much more possibilities uh, in, the, in the industry, I found. So it was a broader range of activities that was available there. How long has it been that you've both been uh, working at the TU Delft Library? For me, it's uh, almost 14 years now. Yeah, uh, for me, it's uh, a little bit longer. <laughs> I'm working there for almost 22 years. Okay. I started as a library information specialist and I changed and switched uh, from jobs within the library several times and now uh, for example I'm in charge of the education part from the library to the students and PhD candidates. Thank you for telling us about your background. I, I always find it fascinating to see how people from different paths end up working on the same topic. And uh, certainly with our podcast, we also try to really learn about how diverse the people are who are involved with research from so many different sides. So as I said at the introduction, our main topic for today would be open science. And 
I think the first question here is what is open science and how is that really different from what we've seen a lot about in the recent years with regard to open access publishing? Well, uh, open access publishing is one of the first uh, yeah, startups from the open science. Uh, it's mm -hmm. one of the earliest activities uh, and it became popular within the libraries of, of, of universities because of yeah saving costs uh, trying uh, because the the, mm -hmm. the, uh, the publishers uh, the the subscription costs uh, they raise up higher and higher and higher and mm -hmm. it was all we thought that it was all money um, paid from governmental institutes or uh, un other funders and it was meant for research and doing research and bringing research to society and then it ended up in the pockets of uh, the the publishing industry and their uh, yeah how do you say that uh, their funders and uh, stockholders yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so that was the the first principle and we started then with helping people to uh, um, open up their their um, publications um and then later it became more important to not only open up your uh, publications but also the uh, the the earlier results from from your research so um like the the, the da research data or research software uh, even hardware uh, working together with citizens in in citizen science so a lot of other um things popped up and then also how do you introduce it and how do you bring rewarding to the people who work in this way so now also um rewarding and recognition is very important in in the open science under the open science umbrella uh, so it's very diverse but it starts with the early results that you're already prepared to share them with others and and work more also in in teams more than only uh, on an individual basis so that's a bit of the, and of course, to to spread it more around the world, to make it more accessible for everybody, uh, mm -hmm. and not only for those that can pay the high uh, the high price. Yes, that is certainly an issue. Since I work as well here in Ecuador, uh, for for South American universities, it's a big issue on on getting access to publications that are behind this very high paywalls or the budgets here are much smaller and it's very, very difficult. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. And I hope it mm -hmm. will help. Yeah. I'll ask perhaps maybe a, a very basic question, but so we've been talking about open access, open science and open publishing. Um, my understanding from what you were saying, Anke, was that open science is sort of a, a broad umbrella term. Yes. Maybe we'll ask this of Nicole, but could you give us, uh, besides open access publishing, what are some of the other terms that fit underneath this open science umbrella? I, I would say under this uh, under this umbrella, uh, you can put every part of uh, your research work uh, and you can make uh, also visible to others because publication were for a long time the only part of your research results that were visible uh, even after behind the paywall to others. But now you can also have the possibility to uh, make your data visible, share your data, make it possible for others to reuse it, or like 
Anka already said, uh, software or even uh, explaining how you can build things with, uh, with open hardware, for example. And another part, certainly that we consider in, at the GU Delft as part of the open science program, program is the open education part. So all, also your research results, you can use them in your education, produce new materials for education also. So yeah, open science covers all aspects of your research, I would say, everything that you can make visible from now on. Okay, mm -hmm. so it's the, the concept is just, um, we shouldn't be hoarding this knowledge that we have, this data and the publishing and um, the education resources that we have, we should be sharing them. Uh, and I guess the question then becomes, what is the the benefit of this type of, of philosophy towards towards science and towards education? Is there a benefit towards the researcher having uh, having open science as a as a fundamental principle? Uh, yes, I think to the researcher, uh, her or uh, herself, it's very important that you um, have more possibilities to get uh, cited. Uh, if you use the right licenses and if you uh, are good in uh, metadating all your uh, work, and we can help you learn that uh, educate you in that, uh, but then you, you can be cited on already your data or uh, on your software, the, the, the piece of software that you add to a longer string. And uh, that's very important because, um, you know, the publish or perish uh, dogma uh, <laughs> within research, it, it takes such a lot of time. And, and uh, now you can already um, have results with other output that you create. And maybe you don't come in the end to publication, uh, but use it some uh, for something else. Uh, so it's very helpful to, to be more visible on, on your broader work. And yeah, for for the, the Institute, it's also nice that, um, that you also are more visible on your complete uh, uh, range of, of, of uh, output and and uh, and it's uh, it's more efficient it's more efficient too not everybody you has to um, yeah uh, create the data you can also analyze the data of someone else and uh, it, it, it's giving more speed and more possibilities to everyone I think mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add that, that we all know also examples that when you share your, your research results, uh, that can uh, contribute or uh, give you the opportunity to new collaborations, uh, being invited uh, to certain conferences or to work together with other researchers. So this is really a kind of more personal benefit when your work is just openly available. Certainly. There's so many little tools like, you know, open source software, like we were saying a bit earlier. There's so many little tools that you create just for your research that maybe don't go anywhere. Like, you know, it, it leads you down a dead end, but that's a useful thing to be able to to share with people. You know, somebody could maybe get some, produce some useful work from that. Absolutely. And, and also uh, publish your negative results. That's also mm. very helpful to others. Mm -hmm. They don't have to go down that path first uh, to, yeah. Yes, so I have a follow-up question here with what Anke was mentioning with regard to 
really compiling data sets of our experiments that are useful and make sense to other researchers. And of course, that's a very big topic. It's something we could potentially talk an entire uh, week about. Um, but what would be your best advice if I'm going to start doing experiments and compile my results? What are the things that I should be taking into account if I, if I want to think of making my data then uh, open and useful to another researcher? That's a very good question. And we stopped a bit talking about open data and we are now talking about FAIR data. Uh, and that FAIR is an acronym. It means making your data findable, accessible, interoperable and reusable. Uh, and there's a lot of help uh, in, 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 in doing so. Uh, and uh, if you make them uh, yeah, more yeah, equal in that uh, way of working, others can, can better reuse your material and not only others within your discipline, but maybe also from other disciplines. And that is very important for for the, the, the working together, also in bigger teams, seeing problems from different angles, and it makes the research so much richer. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and not only making your data fair, but also have a very good management of your own data uh, so that you, you uh, make good decisions on what data you want to save, the data to archive, maybe the, the data that's uh, more uh, difficult to uh, produce or the data that's very exclusive or, or uh, expensive. So you, you save, uh, you archive that data and maybe the, the other data you, you, you lose. Uh, and uh, if you manage your data well uh, during your whole research, in the end, there you can make the choice what data uh, you like to share with others and what data you want to open up. Um, so then it, it, it facilitates you to make a better choice and uh, to, yeah, uh, to have the right data at the right place at the right time in the end. So research data management and making data fair is, uh, is key to... Uh, to have responsible and, and um, yeah, efficient research in the end, yeah, and share it as mm -hmm. much with others as, as possible. But also, as uh, because we say open it up if possible, but keep it close if necessary. Uh, so mm -hmm. that, and that you can make the right decision because you have managed and and uh, giving metadata, so you can find all your own research back and, and also the people that follow you up, like when you're a PhD, you're working on a project that others can work with your data and it's not lost. So I don't know if that's enough <laughs> answer to your question. Yeah, certainly. I think so, yeah. Nicole, do you have anything to, to add? No, not so much. I think Anke said uh, the, the most important uh, aspects of data management it's important to start right away when you start your research with organizing, thinking about your data, thinking about uh, also um, where to, to store it, the storage, the backups and, and things like that. So to make it later easier for yourself uh, to, to take decisions um, about your data. 
the thoughts that are coming to my mind in, in thinking about this is that, um, especially for the PhD candidates that are listening to this podcast, hopefully a few, at least a few of them pursue careers in academia. And so I think this is really a sort of thing that has to, like it's a, almost a generational shift. Uh, I know I'm, I'm thinking of just the, the the researchers that I know that are a bit older, and this this would be a lot for them to to adapt to. And that's not to say that all researchers that are that way. So I hope that, like myself, I'm going to make an effort to to pursue this, and I hope that the the next generation of researchers is also going to do that. So, and if mm-hmm. they were, uh, do we have any resources that we can perhaps share with them to help uh, to help researchers? Um, apply this use this concept of, uh, of fair data yeah there are some uh, wonderful uh, slides about uh, um, uh, fair data and fair software um, and and for um, archiving uh, purposes there's a lot of data repositories already active in the world um, most of them are, are for certain disciplines and um, uh, like the, the, the beta and the engineering uh, disciplines, they, they uh, need more surface space. And, uh, and we mm-hmm. in, in the Netherlands, all the Dutch uh, technical universities work together in starting up uh, the 4TU uh, Research Data Center. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that helps people a lot, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, very important worldwide, I think, is also uh, um, CERN with uh, Zenodo, uh, where you can uh, deposit uh, your data. Yeah. Nicole, have you something to add to that? Yeah, I, I, I will. Uh, it's a little bit publicity for the Open Science MOOC that you also produce at the TV Delft. Because uh, when you start mm-hmm. the MOOC, for example, you start producing data and the second week, the second model is about how uh, you can manage the data that you produce in the first week together with all the participants. Um, so yeah, this, this sets really the, the first steps thinking about your data management, how you can translate that to your own research. Uh, and these are really uh, only the, the, the first steps in it. That's great. Yeah. So we'll put all that into the show notes so that uh, all our listeners can have access to that as well. Yes, please. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. And one thing that I wanted to add here is that uh, I've seen that TU Delft has done a lot of effort on making PhD candidates really aware of the importance of their data management. Uh, Rico was saying earlier that there is a generational shift. And I already noticed that when I was doing my PhD, we just would burn our data on a CD and it would be somewhere or we'd have it on our own computer, uh, maybe as well on the network drive. And that would be about it. And Mm -hmm. if I look now at the requirements for my current PhD students, I see that um, if I recall well, it's in the forms that they have to fill in at the end of the first year when they set up their goal, no goal meeting. There really is a part there that asks about what are you going to do with your data? How are you going to manage it? And the first time that I saw it, I was like, that is actually really good that that's included now because in the past it would be so haphazard and difficult to find things mm-hmm. back after a few years. So uh, I, I wanted to add that in there to, to as well add to how I've seen that things change uh, in generations and uh, as well how much effort Udelft has been 
putting in there to support their researchers in better data management. Absolutely, yeah. We also, uh, but that was because we uh, uh, were making people aware of, of, of storing their data and, and managing their data. And then a lot of people, not only PhDs, but also the uh, um, uh, all the researchers, they said, well, please help us because it's it's a lot of work and we don't, we don't have that much time. So in the end, mm-hmm. and that was because of uh, the wonderful CVB, uh, also the, the, the board of the university, they spent money to hire data stewards. So now every uh, faculty, we have eight faculties, they have their own data stewards who help people uh, with making data management plans and, and, and um, give them advice. And uh, so that's a luxury uh, position, I know, but I think data stewardship is very important uh, for, for the near future and for the <laughs> further future, of course. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so we touched on this a little bit uh, with the the MOOC, the massive open online course that um, that is uh, produced at, T- at TU Delft. But what are some other uh, recommendations that you have for researchers who want to move towards open science? I, I perhaps wanted to go back to the to the support that libraries can provide uh, for researchers. Um, I also. Because we, we talked a lot about data, but there are also these this other topics um, uh, like fair software and, 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 and other uh, topics that uh, relates to research. And what I see also is um, because of, of everything, every part of the research is becoming more and more open, there are also more and more questions about copyright. And copyright is perhaps not uh, like a, a fancy topic, but it's really important to make sure that the material that you use, um, yeah, you are allowed to use it. And when you publish your own material, also that you um, um, give the, the right licenses and the right permissions to the reuse of that material. So uh, I think, and, and this, this is something uh, that library, libraries can really help and support in to find out what are the, the possibilities and what you are allowed to do, how you can best uh, share your work also. So, uh, and and on, on different topics, for, for example, for software, that you have uh, certain types of uh, licenses and for more publication, space publication, you have the Creative Commons licenses, for example. But there is a whole range of licenses. So how do you choose the right one? And I think libraries can help here. Yeah, because I guess the issue is that if you just put something on the internet, you need to really be aware of what license you're attaching to that so that other people, other researchers or whoever have access to this and they can actually use it because or else there is sort of that legal, there's potentially legal repercussions if they if you don't add that license to it. Absolutely, yeah. And also mm-hmm. in the uh, open access uh, publications that uh, when you go to a publisher who says, okay, it will be open access, but still you have to look for the um, rights retention so that the copyright uh, stays yours as, as, a, as an author, that you don't hand it over to a publisher. So this is a very big issue at the moment uh, in, the, in the open access discussion. Uh, it, it seems to a lot of people that open access is already 
in in a very uh, far stage. But this right retention question is um, is key. It's very important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. now, I just wanted to add when uh, when you publish something and you want to use it, uh, yeah, don't transfer your copyright. Even if you only want to reuse your, your own material in your own education, your courses that you give, that can be a problem if you just transferred your copyright. So yeah, it's really important to be aware about that. Yes, I was uh, taking a few notes in the meantime of things that I will add to the show notes that people will find. And I will add um, some information on the different Creative Commons licenses that are out there. I will add a reference on rights retention and I will add the link to the Copyright Center, which is a tool that one can use to check if you can uh, really reuse a figure. Um, so I will add that in there for those who are listening. Yes, great. It's very important. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with this, we've come to the uh, last leg of our interview. And we have three questions that we always ask all our guests. And the first one is, what is your best advice for PhD students? Yeah, and only uh, I want to stress the advice that uh, Nicole already uh, gave. Uh, when you are a PhD uh, and you're starting, um, then please also start uh, working on your portfolio. Don't wait with writing or publishing until the end of your PhD. Start immediately, uh, give the right metadata, give, um, uh, think about licenses, think about uh, um, archiving your data, because when you're in the end and you have managed any uh, uh, everything well from the start, it will give you a big, big help uh, with succeeding and with not coming uh, into stress <laughs> in the end when you uh, and you think, okay, publish that will come later. First, I do other things, but uh, just start immediately. That's my best advice for every PhD student. Yeah. I wanted to to ad advise or recommend uh, to PhDs to talk with colleagues about open science. When they want to go and move to open science, the best way is to know what is the practice within the field. So, and and to to know more about that is just start a discussion with your colleagues and know more about the practice uh, within your field. Mm -hmm. That is excellent advice. So the second question that we like to ask our guests, given the current um, climate, is how has COVID-19 changed your job and or your daily tasks? Um, for, for me, at the, at the education part, because uh, I'm involved in, in courses uh, that we give uh, to the PhD candidates and uh, the MOOC, for example, so we, we had to move the courses from more the traditional face-to-face -face, uh, courses to online. And uh, we did it uh, when, when COVID started or the lockdown started so within two weeks. So this, this was really a big effort, uh, team effort. And I was really, really happy to, to be able to do that. And since we always uh, change and improve the courses that we give uh, to make sure that uh, yeah, the kind of same uh, feeling of attending courses is given even through the online uh, meetings. Yeah, yeah and uh, for me, it's uh, more the personal difference from always working from home. Now we are working from home for more than a year. So, yeah, it's not so nice. I, I am always um, 
walking and strolling around the campus, meeting people, having meetings, uh, having uh, uh, awareness campaigns and, and everything. And it's so quiet now. It's uh, Everything is online and you're working from your own home office. So I'm longing for the period that we can be uh, in Delft again and meeting the students and the researchers and the teachers. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit uh, quiet, too quiet. Oh, yeah, I feel the same way. Yes, I recognize that as well. Now, the last question then we have to round off this interview is, what does a day in the life look like for you? And let's start with Nicole. What does a day in the life look like for you? Yeah, that's so difficult to say. <laughs> I because I, I was thinking uh, how I uh, help uh, personally PhDs and uh, yeah, so so I'm not perhaps the person who has the most contact directly with the PhD candidates, but uh, I'm I try to make sure that we uh, provide the, the right services and information and also in time uh, to the questions uh, and, and that we that we get so. Yeah, it's a lot of attention giving uh, the whole day to make sure that we help uh, uh, you and your colleagues. How about you, Anke? What does a day in the life look like for you? Uh, yes, a normal working day is, uh, like I said before COVID, when we are on campus, uh, campus it's very active because I'm uh, also a relations manager for the, for the library. So, um, yeah seeking always the contacts with uh, with um, the faculties and with staff of the faculty the mt of a faculty in and in, in asking how we can improve our service and what can we do to um, to yeah to do things best and 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 stay as close to uh, education and and research as we can and the other part of my role is being uh, executive secretary of the open science program of TU Delft and uh, that's a very nice position because like we said in this interview a library can do a lot uh, with, with open science and helping out in open science and 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 teaching and and, and providing but uh, we are not alone in this we are also seeking contact with uh, legal services with HR yeah, because we are talking about rewarding and recognition about legal positions we are working with ICT uh, and and for the fair software and and uh, the infrastructure so there's a lot of departments that we need to bring in this bigger open science program and not to make it the work of a library alone so that's most of my uh, background work uh, for for the um, yeah for the open science yeah one, one of the things then that is special about the TU Delft Library that I wanted to mention for the people who are listening is its architecture. Now, Rico and I are both structural engineers, so this is something of our interest. And I, I will make sure to link to a photograph of the library uh, in the show notes as well for those who are listening. Um, but to give a brief description of what we what we have at TU Delft is there is the main building, the aula of TU Delft, which is this massive, brutalist concrete structure that either looks like a spaceship or a frog, depending how you look at it. But it's really massive bulk of concrete. And right next to that, you have the the library, which is this very 
open space, airy building. It has the sloping uh, roof with grass that students like to sit on. And some people say, well, that's where the spaceship mm -hmm. of the Aula is going to land or, or where the frog is going to jump on. So I wanted to plug that in here uh, for those who are listening to go uh, look at the photographs that I will make sure to link in the show notes, because I, I think this is a bit different from most typical university libraries that uh, may have two centuries of, of history on them. I, I think the adult really created a different type of library space than uh, as, as a structural engineer and as a former student and now a Theodolf employee, I really appreciate the architecture of that as well. Uh, thank you. Yeah, we are very proud of the of the building. It's, it's very nice working uh, in there and we are longing to <laughs> come back to that place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, the benefit of Google Maps, I'm, I'm visiting Delft right now. Yeah, it is. It is very interesting and like, <laughs> yeah, very unique. Now, please, if if you can travel uh, next year, uh, be our guests. Come and visit us in Delft uh, again. Eva, you were there, of course, uh, for a few years. <laughs> How long did you study in Delft? Um, I did my PhD in Delft, so I did my PhD between 2009 and 2013. And since then, I've been a part-time, first I was part-time postdoc, and now I'm a, a part-time tenured assistant professor. Yeah, so she'll be there as soon as possible. I think that's Ava's, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> she wants to get back. And actually, uh, the next trip on my list was, was going to be the Netherlands, so. Okay, now, be welcome, yeah. <laughs> Let's hope, hopefully soon, keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> right, thank you everybody for listening. This was episode 25 of the PhD Talk podcast in which we talked about open science with Anke Versteeg and Nicole Will from the TU Delft Library. Um, I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the PhD Talk podcast. I hope it inspires you to put more practices of open science uh, in your research. There will be a lot of resources in the show notes of today's episode. And with that, I would like to say goodbye to you. And I hope you will join us next week for more on research life and uh, research mechanics.